May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. There were 11 of us walking together through Galilee last week over my last four days in Israel and Palestine. As we hiked through the land, I often wondered about the number of us. 11, just like there were after Jesus' death until a replacement was found for Judas. 11 of us, 10 Presbyterians who stuck around after the conference and one Jewish trail guide. 11 of us, trying to unravel and sort out everything we'd just been through together. Our poor guide, who bore the brunt of our thousands of questions and wondering as we all tried to process together. He was a very good sport. I think he had no idea when he took the job to guide us along the trail that he was going to be an unofficial member of the conference and one of our speakers. Our first two weeks there were intense. We met with people of all three faiths that call Jerusalem and the surrounding lands holy. Jewish people consider it holy because it is the place to which their ancestors in faith escaped from Egypt, the promised land. Christians call it holy because it's the place where Jesus entered into our time and space as a human. Muslims call it holy because it is said to be where their great prophet ascended to heaven. We met with Israelis, we met with Palestinians, we met with people whose families had lived there for centuries or longer, and with those who only recently moved there and started families. I'm still processing much of what happened there, and I'm sure you'll hear more about it in the weeks to come as I manage to unravel it and untangle it. Hopefully I'll have a video or some videos to share in the not-too-distant future. But for today, I'll leave it at this. It was a difficult and exhausting two weeks. I needed 50 miles of hiking to decompress. For all of time, it seems, the political situation in that part of the world has been what can be best described as a hot mess. And the disciples had just experienced that times a million compared to what my compatriots and I had. I wondered, as I walked that land with ten companions, what those weeks between Jesus' arrest and the descent of the Holy Spirit must have felt like for those disciples. The past seven weeks had been a roller coaster for this group of friends. Their beloved teacher, leader, friend had been sentenced to death on trumped-up charges that didn't make any sense. His execution was public, slow, painful, gruesome. His burial was rushed because of the Sabbath mandate to cease all work from sundown to sundown. When two of the women in the group had gone the day after the Sabbath to complete the burial rites, his body was gone. Not just gone, though, like someone had taken it. Jesus was risen from the dead just like he had said he would be. He was indeed the Messiah they'd been waiting for. In the weeks since the resurrection, the disciples had been able to walk and talk and eat once again with Jesus, their Messiah. This was the hinge in the center of all of history, and they were here to watch it. Forty days after he'd risen just like he'd said he would, he was taken up into heaven after promising them that his spirit would come down soon to carry them out into the world with the message of the good news. 
So as they gathered for prayer that day, while the rest of the city celebrated the Pentecost holiday, you could almost feel the anticipation in the air. They didn't know what to expect or when to expect it, but every time they gathered, their excitement and their hope increased. Perhaps it's today. At first, as they began to pray, it was just like any other prayer. But then the walls began to rattle, and their hair started to move as though they were outside on a breezy day. At first, it was just a whistle through the cracks and the corners of the building, but soon the room was filled with violent, rushing wind. This was not what they had expected Jesus meant when he said he'd send his spirit down. And like ribbons, fire began to descend from above and to rest on each one of them. Overwhelmed by the power of this frightening, wild, amazing spirit of God, the disciples could not help but begin to tell the good news. Each of them began to speak the gospel in another language, and soon a crowd gathered at the commotion. Many in the crowd were amazed, while many others in the crowd said, somebody's been hitting the bottle a little early today. The disciples weren't deterred by the ones who made fun of them, though. The Holy Spirit could not be quenched by the unbelievers. I wonder if we truly believe that. Not just the story, but do we truly believe that the Holy Spirit cannot be quenched by unbelievers? Sometimes I wonder if we even believe that the Holy Spirit is there. Or if we do, we act like the Holy Spirit is just sometimes there, when it's convenient. Makes a couple people put their hands up in the air during worship, and then leaves again for a year. As a kid in Kansas, I once stood on the front porch with my dad, watching a tornado about a quarter mile away from our house. My mom didn't like that much. So I know what a violent rushing wind sounds, looks, and feels like. And most of our Holy Spirit music and liturgy and even many Pentecost services are more like a 20-year-old box fan set to low than a violent rushing wind. It's like a big lighter, not tongues of flame from heaven. Why don't we trust anymore that God is going to move powerfully? How is it that this violent rushing wind has been tamed so much in our liturgy and in our theology and the way that we live out our lives? Is it because when we walk around outside these walls, we don't see much changing? Perhaps it's because we're waiting for the world to change and come to us. We're defining renewal in the church by our numbers of new converts who wander in from the outside. But if that's the case, we have Pentecost backwards. We see in our passage today that the Holy Spirit reached outside the church. The disciples speaking in many different languages would have been pointless if it were not so that they could preach to people of all different languages and backgrounds. But the Holy Spirit came first into the house where the disciples were gathered. What we see in Pentecost is not the Holy Spirit reforming the outside and bringing it in to renew the church, but the Holy Spirit reforming the church first to then bring renewal to those outside the walls. Our Christian celebration of Pentecost is a celebration of renewal of the people of God. But Pentecost is not solely or first 
a Christian holiday. While it means something very different for Christians, it was first a Jewish celebration. For those of you who are really interested in the history of Pentecost, I have attached a couple of pages at the end of this week's sermon manuscript that gives some information about it. But the short story is that Pentecost was, and still is for practicing Jews, the celebration of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Passover was the celebration of their liberation from their Egyptian slave masters. But Pentecost was the remembrance of how after that they were formed together as a community when God gave them the Torah, the law. And today, Christians celebrate Pentecost with much the same emphasis on the formation of a community. But we add a new chapter or layer This is when God said, you are my people. I am your God and you are my people. In Jesus, I have set you free from the constraints of law and released you into the arms of grace. And now you are a new sort of people. Go and take that news to the world around you. When we asked our new friends in Palestine and Israel how we can represent peace on their behalf, they said to do like Jesus says. Come and see, then go and tell. Go and tell your friends and your family and everyone you know that there is hope here and that we stand in solidarity with you all in Jesus Christ. It starts with community. It starts with listening, with knowing, with loving, with being together. We are freed from all the things that separate us from God and from one another. We are freed from sin. Sometimes Pentecost is called the church's birthday, but I like to think of Pentecost as the Christian Independence Day. (laughs) Often on our national patriotic holidays, holidays like Memorial Day, U.S. Independence Day, Veterans Day, we pray for our nation, as we absolutely should. But we also worry sometimes and ask God what has happened to our country. Where did God go out there? Why have people stopped coming to church? What is wrong with our godless nation? When did our nation turn away from God? When we read the news that there has been yet another shooting and yet another school, we wonder why people have strayed so far. But those are the wrong questions. Or at the very least, they ought to be pretty low on our priority list. Our first questions should be introspective, looking inwardly at ourselves, not looking out at the world. If the world's not getting it, our first question should be, where do I need to let the Holy Spirit into my life? Where do we need to ask the Holy Spirit to guide our congregation? In what areas are we failing to submit to the wild, wonderful, terrifying, life-giving, fire-filled ways of the Holy Spirit? The Spirit came first to those believers gathered together on Pentecost. The Spirit came to them as they waited expectantly, not optimistically. They were thinking not that the Holy Spirit could come at any time now, but expectantly saying confidently that the Holy Spirit is going to show up at any moment now. They didn't just throw their bulletins to the wind and put their hands up or clap during one or two of the songs. If you want to put your hands up or clap during the music at church, that is totally fine. Go for it. 
Energetic hymn singing pleases God, as Tom was kind enough to point out this morning. He almost preached half my sermon for me. (laughs) But that's not all the Holy Spirit has to offer. The Holy Spirit is not that tame. That's a great start, but it is not a violent rushing wind. I actually like a little bit of back or talk back during a sermon, so you can feel free to yell amen or okay now or preach sister or whatever it is that floats your boat. I won't mind that. I actually kind of enjoy it. It lets me know you're still awake out there. But that's not tongues of fire. The Holy Spirit affects the church first. It fills up the believers gathered for worship, and it ignites something in them that causes them to rush out of the doors and to start telling the good news with such passion and such energy and such enthusiasm that some people think they've hit the bottle a little early today. The Holy Spirit inspires people to go out on a limb and invite a few dozen bikers to come share our space. Amen. (laughs) Thank you, Ashley. Our church is very different today than the gathering of the disciples 2,000 years ago. And it should be, because things in general are very different today than they were 2,000 years ago. So I don't know exactly what the movement of the Holy Spirit is going to look like or sound like in our midst today or next week or the following week or any given time we gather together. But I know that the Holy Spirit will show up if we make the space. Maybe we'll experience a violent rushing wind. That would be very exciting. But it's more likely that we will experience something else we could never have expected. Amen.